I want to invite you to turn with me to Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14. We'll be looking this morning at verses 53 to 72. Mark 14, 53 to 72. The title of the message this morning is Finding Courage to Stand for Christ. This is not a time for Christians to be cowards. This is a time for Christians to have the courage to stand before the world and boldly proclaim the truth about Jesus and the gospel. When believers are silenced by fear and intimidation, the enemy rejoices. You see, fear and intimidation are tools of Satan to cause believers to cower before an unbelieving world. The world desperately needs to hear the truth about who Jesus is and what he has done. Amen? The world needs to hear the truth, but they won't hear if you and I are afraid to speak up and speak out. It's time to trade in your cowardice for courage. But where do we find the courage to stand for Christ? This morning, God's Word is going to show us. Please stand for the reading of God's Holy Word, Mark 14, beginning in verse 53. Then they led Jesus away to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes gathered together, and Peter followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the officers and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were seeking to obtain testimony against Jesus to put him to death. They were not finding any. For many were giving false testimony against him, but their testimony was not consistent. And some, standing up, were giving false testimony against him, saying, we ourselves heard him say, I will destroy this sanctuary made with hands, and in three days I will build another made without hands. And not even in this was their testimony consistent. The high priest stood up in their midst and questioned Jesus, saying, You answer nothing? What are these men testifying against you? But he kept silent and did not answer. Again, the high priest was questioning him and said to him, Are you the Christ? the Son of the Blessed One? And Jesus said, I am, and you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power, coming with the clouds of heaven. Tearing his tunic, the high priest said, What further need do we have of witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. How does it seem to you? They all condemned him to be deserving of death. Some began to spit at him, to blindfold him, and to beat him with their fists, and to say to him, Prophesy! The officers received him with slaps in the face. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. Seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you're talking about. And he went out into the entryway. When the servant girl saw him, she began once more to say to the bystanders, This is one of them. But he again was denying it. And after a little while, the bystanders were again saying to Peter, Surely you're one of them, for you are also a Galilean. 
but he began to curse and swear. I do not know this man you're talking about. And immediately a rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said the statement to him, before a rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. Throwing himself down, he began to cry. Let's pray. Father, this is your word, and apart from your help, we will not understand the message that you have to communicate to us today. So speak clearly by your spirit through your servant and open our ears to hear in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. When we come to these verses, Jesus has already been betrayed by Judas. Judas led the authorities to the Garden of Gethsemane where they seized Jesus and arrested him. His disciples abandoned him and fled. Now Jesus has been taken to stand trial before the Sanhedrin council. The council was made up of the groups mentioned in verse 53. The chief priests, the elders, and the scribes. There were 70 men plus the high priest. The Sanhedrin was the highest governing body of the Jews. Now the trial took place at the palace of the high priest. The palace was a, a rectangular two-story structure with an open courtyard in the center. The trial took place on the second level above the courtyard. But I want you to notice when you come to verse 54, the scene changes. In verse 53, it's Jesus and the Sanhedrin upstairs. In verse 54, it's Peter and the crowd down below in the courtyard. This is what I want you to recognize. At the same time that Jesus is displaying great courage before the council, Peter is displaying great cowardice before the crowd. Jesus' trial and Peter's denial are happening simultaneously. And what I want you to see is Mark goes back and forth between Jesus and the council and Peter and the crowd. Verse 53, Jesus and the council. Verse 54, Peter and the crowd. Verses 55 to 65, Jesus and the council. Verse 66 to 72, back to Peter and the crowd. The question is, why does Mark go back and forth like this? Here's the reason why. Mark is contrasting Jesus and Peter. He wants us to see how the courage of Jesus contrasts with the cowardice of Peter. The main idea of these verses is this. The courage to stand for Christ comes from trusting Christ, not self. The courage to stand for Christ comes from trusting Christ, not self. I think that message will become abundantly clear as we examine this passage under two headings. Here's the first. Jesus is the source of courage. As we look closely at Jesus' trial before this hostile court, what we're going to see is how Jesus displayed tremendous courage. Now, I need you to get right from the outset. The goal is not just to see what courage looks like. 
But what I need us to understand is that the courage we need is His courage. And that'll make more sense as we go along. Now, in a normal trial, I want you to think about how this usually works. You have a suspect who's been charged with a crime. The trial is to establish a verdict of guilty or not guilty. If the suspect is found guilty, then there will be sentence passed. But if you look at verse 55, that's not at all what happens here. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were seeking to obtain testimony against Jesus to put him to death. You see what's happening? They're not having a trial to obtain guilt. They've already decided he's guilty. They've already declared a verdict. Matter of fact, they've already passed sentence on Jesus. They say he has to be executed. The verdict has been passed. The sentence has been passed. Only one problem. They got no crime to charge him with. This is a trial in search of charges. What they're doing, they're listening to testimony in hopes to establish some capital crime they can charge him with. Are you with me? So they're listening to various testimony, trying to establish two or three witnesses that, that are consistent so they can charge him with some crime worthy of death. So they don't need just any crime. They have to find some capital crime they can charge him with. But if you look at the end of verse 55, they were not having success finding any. Verse 56 says, many were giving false testimony, but their testimony wasn't consistent. Now, that doesn't mean their testimony was made up. It doesn't mean it invented it. False testimony just means it proved to be inaccurate. In other words, when they questioned the witnesses and cross-examined them, the, the inconsistency between witnesses was too much to establish what they were saying as fact. Are you with me? Their stories differed too much. And so their testimony proved to be false. And they couldn't convict Jesus without the accurate testimony of two or three witnesses. But you see what it says in verse 56, their testimony is inconsistent. So the council's striking out. I mean, they're, they're just not finding anything they can charge Jesus with. Well, in verses 57 and 58, what you see is that some people were accusing Jesus of saying he's going to destroy the temple made with hands and build another made without hands. Now, here's a charge. If they could establish it, they could convict Jesus of a capital crime. If they could establish that Jesus planned to destroy the temple, then they would have charges they could bring against him that would be worthy of death. But the problem is, again, you see what it says in verse 59, their testimony is inconsistent. Why is their testimony inconsistent? Well, Jesus did say, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it again. But we know from Scripture what was he talking about. He's talking about his body. The temple of his body. Listen. Jesus was saying that he would be destroyed and rise again on the third day. 
And he would replace the temple as the place where God meets with his people. God now dwells among his people in the person of Jesus. In other words, if you want to meet God, you don't go to a temple anymore. You go to the Son of God. He is the center of true religion now, not the temple. And that's what Jesus was saying. I'm going to replace the temple as the dwelling place of God among men. As the place where you find God. He wasn't actually saying, I am going to personally destroy the physical temple. Eventually, even with these charges, they are unable to establish any clear capital crime that they can charge Jesus with. So what does the high priest do? He does the only thing that he can do. He begins to question Jesus directly. He's got to try to get Jesus to incriminate himself. They can't establish any clear testimony from anybody else. So he's hoping to get Jesus to incriminate himself. And at first, even that didn't work. Verse 60. The high priest stood up in their midst, questioned Jesus, saying, You answer nothing. What are these men testifying against you? But he kept silent and did not answer. Why didn't Jesus answer? Well, all of the testimony against him so far had proved to be inconsistent. There's no need to answer inconsistent testimony. No need for him to reply. They couldn't establish his guilt. So he just remained silent. But finally... The high priest asked Jesus point blank. Verse 61, look at it. Are you the Christ, the son of the blessed one? He gets right to the point. Are you king, the promised Messiah, the king God is sending to reign and rule over his people, the son of the blessed one. He doesn't say son of God because the Jews didn't say the name of God. He refers to the blessed one. But he's asking him, are you the king, the son of God? Are you the Christ, the son of the living God? Now, Jesus had done and said many things in his ministry that clearly implied who he was. He claimed to have the authority to forgive sins. He called himself the Lord of the Sabbath. He had done and said a lot of things that gave clear message that he's the son of God. But he had never openly, publicly said, I am the Christ, the son of God. He had declared it to his disciples in private when Peter said, are you the Christ? Or Peter said, you are the Christ. He acknowledged that to be true, but he had never said it publicly until now. The high priest asked him point blank, are you the Christ, the son of the living God? Look what Jesus says in verse 62. I am. And you shall see the son of man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Are you the son of God? I am. And he quotes two Old Testament scriptures, Daniel 7, 13 and Psalm 110, verse 1. 
the title Son of Man and the reference to coming with the clouds of heaven, both of those come from Daniel 7, 13 and 14. Let me read it to you. I kept looking in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming and he came up to the ancient of days and came near before him and to him was given a dominion, glory and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations and men of every tongue might serve him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not be taken away and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed." That's the, the scripture Jesus is referencing when he tells them, I am the son of man who will come with the clouds of heaven. He's saying, I am the king that Daniel prophesied about. The king who will rule forever, whom all nations and people will serve. Then he also quotes Psalm 110 verse 1. Yahweh says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I... Put your enemies as a footstool for your feet. Also, a prophecy about the Messiah, the promised king. That God will put him on throne as king and all of his enemies will be put under his feet. That means he'll defeat all of his enemies. All of the enemies will, of God will serve him as king. So I want you to get what Jesus is saying here. In his answer to the high priest's question, are you the Christ, the son of the living God? Jesus is confirming several things. He is confirming that he is the king who will be enthroned to the highest place of power and authority. He is the one appointed by the father to judge the living and the dead. He is the one who will come in heavenly glory. He is the one who will reign over all of creation throughout all eternity. He is the son of the living God who has been given all power and authority. That's what he's confirming to the high priest and the whole council. Now I want you to think about something. Jesus could have avoided death if he had only remained silent. They, you already see they had nothing on him. All he had to do was do what he'd been doing. Say nothing. But the time for silence had passed. It was time to declare the truth about who he was. And I want you to understand this is a tremendous act of courage. To stand before this court and say, I am the Christ, the son of the living God. Why? Why was that such a courageous thing? Because it is those words that sealed his fate. Verse 63, tearing his tunic, the high priest said, what further need do we have of witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. How does it seem to you? They all condemned him to be deserving death. For Jesus to claim a position as ruler and judge at the right hand of God, Jesus was essentially equating himself with God. And in the eyes of the religious leaders, that is blasphemy. And it would be if it weren't true. But blasphemy was punishable by death. Normally death by stoning. But 
in the case of the Romans, their, crucifi their death was by crucifixion. So they condemned Jesus to death. And then the suffering begins. Verse 65. Some began to spit at him, to blindfold him, to beat him with their fists, say to him, prophesy. The officers received him with slaps to the face. They spit on Jesus. This is a way of insulting or expressing contempt for him. They mock him as a false prophet. They put a blindfold on him and hit him and say, who was it that hit you? If you're a prophet, then you ought to be able to say who hit you. They're just mocking him, calling him a false prophet. They beat him, insult him. This is the important thing for you to get. Did Jesus know when he said, I am the Christ, the son of the living God, did he know that's what they would do to him? Yeah. He knew exactly what would happen to him when he finally made his true identity known. How do I know he knew? Mark chapter 10 Verses 33 and 34. Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the scribes. They will condemn him to death and will deliver him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And three days later, he will rise again. He'd already told them that they, that's what they were going to do to him. He knew the minute he opened his mouth and declared the truth about who he is, that he would be tortured and killed. He knew it. And yet, when they say, are you the Christ, the son of the living God, Jesus looks them in the eye with tremendous courage and says, absolutely. Absolutely. Without hesitation or equivocation, he states the truth about who he is. Now, you listen to me, church. We may not be on trial before hostile men, but we do live in a society that is hostile toward Christ and hostile toward true biblical Christianity. The courage that Christ displays before this hostile court is the same courage that you and I need to display before a hostile world. But I want to say it like this. What you and I need is Christ's courage. I'm not saying that we need to be courageous like Christ. It's not what I'm saying. I'm saying we need his courage because apart from him, we don't possess this kind of courage. It's not inherent in us to act with this kind of courage in the face of hostility and stand for Christ with this kind of courage. If we're left to ourselves, what would we do? If we're left to our own strength, what would we do? We would do what Peter did. We would deny Jesus. Because you see, Jesus is the source of courage. But self Self is the source of cowardice. And that's the second heading I want us to look at. Verses 66 to 72. Christ is the source of courage, but self is the source of cowardice. Now keep this in mind. Jesus is upstairs on trial before the Sanhedrin. But upstairs overlooks the courtyard. In other words, 
it's not a closed off room. From, the, from the upstairs, you can see down into the courtyard. There's no roof above the courtyard. It's open to the sky. So up here in the courtyard, Jesus is on trial before the court. But downstairs, in the, upstairs in the, uh, with the high priest, Jesus is on trial before the court. Downstairs in the courtyard, Peter's kind of on trial of his own. Jesus is on trial before the court. Peter is kind of on trial before the crowd. A crowd of officers and servants of the high priest. And while Jesus shows tremendous courage, Peter shows pure cowardice. He denies Jesus three times. But here's what we need to understand. Peter's failure didn't come out of the blue. There were clear signs that Peter was in the flesh. What do I mean in the flesh? I mean Peter was under the control of his sinful human nature. One sign of that is when Peter said to Jesus back in Mark 14, 29, even though all may fall away, yet I will not. Jesus said to him, truly, I say to you today, this very night before a rooster crows twice, you yourself will deny me three times. But Peter kept saying insistently, if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. What's that? That is pride. That is a total absence of humility. That's a mark of the sinful nature. Peter was in the flesh. Peter thought way too highly of himself. He overestimated his own strength. Another sign that Peter was in the flesh comes from the Garden of Gethsemane that we looked at last week. How many times did Jesus find Peter sleeping when Peter was supposed to be praying? Three. Peter, Jesus called on Peter to watch and pray three times. Peter failed to pray. How many times did Peter deny Jesus? Three. Not only was he prideful, he wasn't prayerful. When he's called to pray, he sleeps. And what Jesus said to him in Mark 14, 38, explains it perfectly. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Your human nature is weak. Peter was under the control of his sinful human nature. What the Bible calls your flesh, his humanness. And he was weak. His first denial is in verses 57 and 58. We might say this is a private denial. A servant girl who works for the high priest, she recognizes Peter. I want you to notice what it says. Seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him. Seeing him, she looked at him. That sounds redundant, but it's not. It means she recognizes him, and once she recognizes him, she takes a long, close look at him. Looks him over carefully. And what she recognizes is that she has seen him before. You see, remember this crowd is a crowd of servants and officers of the high priest. She knows he's not one of them, because she's one of them herself. She knows all of them. 
And she recognizes him. She says, I, I've seen him with Jesus. She probably had seen Peter when Jesus was in the temple teaching over the past few days. She had probably seen Peter with Jesus in the temple. And she says to him, you were with the Nazarene Jesus. Now I want you to keep this in mind. This servant girl is at the bottom rung of the social ladder. No position, no power, no authority whatsoever. But Peter cowers before her like she was the queen. She had no authority to do anything to Peter. Yet he cowers before her as if she held his life in her hands. Peter denies knowing Jesus. You see it there in verse 68. I neither know nor understand what you are talking about. Here's what he's saying. I don't know that guy. And I have no connection to him whatsoever. I don't have anything to do with this guy. And you see what he did after that? He went out into the entryway. He distanced himself. He left the fire and went out to the entryway of the courtyard, separating himself from this girl, trying to get away from her and her accusations so that he won't be recognized. Then the second denial comes in verse 69 and the first part of verse 70. But this is not a private denial. This time his denial is more public. When the servant girl saw him, now she begins to tell the crowd. He's one of them. She begins to say to everyone else. Now she isn't just saying Peter was with Jesus. She's saying he is, look at it, look at it, quote, he is one of them. What does that mean? He's part of that group of troublemakers. That guy upstairs, this Jesus, he's one of those. He's part of that group. And it says, again, he was denying it. Do you catch that? He was denying it. It doesn't say he denied it. It says he was denying it. What's the difference? It means he was doing it over and over and over again. He was repeatedly denying Jesus. So now Peter has not only denied Jesus privately before this servant girl, he has denied him publicly before the crowd. The third denial is in the latter part of verse 70 and verse 71. This time, it's not the servant girl who's identifying Peter. It's the whole crowd that recognizes him as Jesus' follower. Surely you're one of them, for you also are a Galilean. How did they know Peter was from Galilee? His accent. His accent gave him away. You're a Galilean. They knew Jesus was a, Nazar was a Nazarene. He's from Nazareth. Nazareth is in Galilee. You're a Galilean like Jesus. His accent gives him away. But this time Peter doesn't just deny Christ. No, 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 no. He takes it a step further. Verse 71. He began to curse and swear. I do not know this man you are talking about. What does that mean? Curse and swear. He's not what we would call cussing. Saying expletives, curse words. It's not what he's doing. He's calling down a curse on himself. It would be something like this. 
may God strike me dead if what I'm saying is not true. I don't know this man, and may God kill me if I'm lying. And it says he began to swear. That means to swear an oath. I swear before God, I do not know this man. I want you to notice something. You see what he calls Jesus? This man. You'll remember there was a time when Peter said, Jesus said, who do you say that I am? Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. But now who's Jesus? This man. He's just this man. Peter is trying to distance himself as far from Jesus as he possibly can. Verse 72, immediately a rooster crowed a second time. Peter remembered how Jesus had said the statement to him, before a rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And throwing himself down, he began to cry. Peter was relying only on his own strength. He'd said, I'll never deny you. But what was he relying on for the strength to never deny Jesus? Just himself. He overestimated his own strength. He was trusting in his own flesh and he failed. He disowned Jesus before the crowd and the realization of it pierced his heart like an arrow and Peter collapses in grief over his sin. Now, Keep that scene in mind. Keep Peter's great failure in your mind. And I want to read you an account of what happened less than two months later. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God did through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of lawless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. This Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. That's the same Peter who just denied Jesus three times. He denied Jesus before a small crowd of servants and soldiers. Now, on the day of Pentecost, Jesus is boldly, courageously standing before thousands of Jews and saying, Jesus is the Christ and you killed him. What a change. Where does this boldness come from? What happened that transformed Peter's cowardice into courage? Remember the verses I just read you are from Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost. That's the day when Christ's followers were filled with the Holy Spirit of God. Listen, the cowardice of Peter became the courage of Christ when the Holy Spirit of God took up residence in him. You see, 
When the Spirit of God took up residence in him, Peter was no longer under the control, under the influence of his sinful human nature. Now he's under the control of the Spirit of God. What made the difference? What transformed Peter's cowardice into courage? Christ in him made the difference. You understand? That's why I'm telling you, I'm not telling you to be courageous like Christ was. I'm telling you, you need the courage of Christ. You need His courage. You need Christ in you to be courageous. The courage to stand for Christ can only come from Christ in you. The message today is not be courageous like Christ. The message is the courage to stand for Christ comes only from trusting in Christ, not in self. We're going to sing a hymn in just a minute, Stand Up, Stand Up for Jesus. And my favorite line in that song is, Stand up, stand up for Jesus. Stand in His strength alone. The arm of flesh will fail you. You dare not trust your own. You dare not rely on yourself to have the courage to stand for Jesus because it's not in you. You must have Christ, His strength in you. You have to rely on Him to have that courage. Listen, don't make the same mistakes that Peter made. He insisted he would never deny Christ. He was prideful. Another mistake is he failed to pray. Jesus said, pray so you don't enter into temptation. Instead, Peter just slept. Listen, that's what happens when you're under the control of your sinful human nature. When you're in the flesh, you fail to see and realize how weak you really are on your own. You think you're strong enough. And when you think you're strong enough, you don't feel the need to pray and rely on Jesus. Oh, how important it is to maintain a posture of humility. Don't you think for a moment that you are incapable of denying Christ. Acknowledge the weakness of your flesh. The minute you say, I would never deny Christ, that's the first step toward denying Christ. Acknowledge that your flesh is weak and then pray constantly. To have the courage of Christ. The apostles prayed that prayer. Acts 4.31. When they had prayed earnestly. If you read the context. You'll see what they were praying for. Is boldness to speak the gospel. When they had prayed earnestly. The place where they had gathered together was shaken. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And began to speak the word of God with confidence. What had happened? They had been preaching and they were being arrested and being persecuted. And so what did they do? They prayed for greater courage. And the more they prayed, the more they prayed, the more courage God gave them. That's what you and I have to do. We have to pray for the courage of Jesus. We have to pray because the courage to speak for Christ comes from the power of Christ in you. Oh, listen today. The courage to stand for Christ comes from trusting in Christ, not self. 
Let me ask you a question. When the opportunity comes for you to stand for Jesus, will you speak up or shut down? Will you be courageous or will you be a coward? Even when you know there are going to be consequences for your boldness, will you speak up? Will you have courage? I'm just going to tell you, if you're trusting in yourself and your own strength, you will shut down. You will act cowardly if you're relying on your own strength. But if you're trusting in Christ, you will have the courage to speak up. I'm telling you, you'll find the courage if you look to him and rely on him and say, Lord Jesus, in myself I'm weak. But oh, if you'll give me the courage, I'll speak boldly for you. Give us boldness, give us boldness. If we rely on him that way, he will do it. Listen, you know what my prayer is? My prayer is that God would grant us the courage to stand before a hostile, unbelieving word and boldly say, Jesus is the only begotten Son of the true and living God, eternal, with no beginning and no end. He was born of a virgin, became truly human while remaining truly God at the same time. He lived a perfect, sinless life. He died on the cross as a substitute for sinners. He rose from the dead bodily on the third day. He ascended to heaven where he sits at the right hand of the Father in the place of all power and authority. He is coming again to judge the living and the dead. His kingdom will be established in absolute fullness and he will reign absolutely uncontested and eternally. And it's only by trusting in Jesus, this Jesus, that anyone can be saved from hell where they will suffer the wrath of God against their sin for all eternity. Oh, how I'm praying that you would have the courage to stand and say before the world, He is the Christ, the Son of the living God. This is not a time for Christians to be cowards. And we don't have to be. If we will look to Christ and trust in Christ, we will find the courage to stand for Christ. I want you to take a hymn and turn to 500.